0: Father, we give you praise and honor that is due you alone. Would you receive our worship this morning? Would you receive the, the exaltation, the, the, the honor, the glory that, that you deserve just for who you are? And doubly because you saw fit to be merciful to us that our hearts might respond with gratitude and praise as we see afresh the overwhelming love of God to us in Christ. That our hearts would line up with our lips and that you would be pleased by what you hear as your people give you thanks and praise for your goodness to us. Would you speak to us through your word today that we would be equipped and encouraged as people you've called to yourself we love you. Help us now in Jesus name we pray. Amen. And amen. You can be seated. Good morning. We are continuing our series in the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And it's really exciting and glad to be with you today. You can grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is where we'll be. If you do not have a Bible or you need one, you can slip your hand up and someone from our strike team can put one in your hands. And if you do not own one or you're not sure where it is, feel free to take this one home with you. We'd like you just to, to have one. We're in the middle of a series through these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, that we've called uh, Strength for Today and Bright Hope for Tomorrow. And one of our core values, if you've been at River City for a while, one of our core values is the centrality and authority of God's Word, the Bible, in our lives. We sit under its authority. It guides and directs and informs all of life. Every word of it, we believe, is God-breathes, and every part of it is good for us. And in many of Paul's letters like the ones we're studying, there's a, usually a section or a time in that letter when Paul transitions from thanksgiving and encouragement and praise to God for all of his good gifts, and he shifts to practical theology. How does this now play out in real life? Kind of answering that question, how do we live now in light of what Christ has done for us? This is a pretty standard uh, outline of, of most of what Paul and not just Paul, but Peter's letters and even John's writing. It's its a—it's kind of the pattern we see in the New Testament. And in this section that we'll start today in chapter 4, Paul shifts this letter to some direct teaching, if you will, some practical theology in the way that Thessalonians should live in light of who they are in Christ. Because if you're going to make it all the way to the end... If they're going to endure, if they're going to live the lives that are reflective of the faith in Jesus that they profess, Paul is helping them by saying, in light of all that, this is now how you walk, which is important because as I said, we're people of the word and that means we're gospel people. And when I say we're gospel people, it means that, that we are unapologetic of the reality that it is only by grace through faith that we're saved. That's it. It is not by any works that any of us can claim, like, look at my checklist, I did a little more than that guy, so therefore I'm a little higher up on the God loves me scale. We are unapologetic that it is only by grace, through faith in Christ, that any of us are are saved, and we have nothing in ourselves to boast in before God. It is good news. That according to God's own mercy, he takes wretched sinners and doesn't just leave us as wretched sinners, but makes us, applying the blood of Jesus who dies for wretched sinners, makes us now beloved saints. We're gospel people. And sometimes, the reason I bring this up is because sometimes it gets a little sticky and there's concern as we look and read God's word and we come to passages like this that are starting to give instruction That there are practical things that we are now called to. Instructions on how to live as a Christian in the world. And so there's this tension we might feel that, well, are we in danger of losing grace and losing the gospel and missing what God's done among us? But that's not the case. There are imperatives, that is, do and not do type instructions in the Bible. And my argument today is that we are wise to listen to them. Because every do that we're called to, springs from what has been done in Jesus. So for the believer in Jesus Christ, what follows in chapters 4 and 5 of this letter, the first first Thessalonians, has its roots and its foundation in all that Paul has already said in chapters 1 through 3. So if you haven't read chapters 1 through 3, I'm not going to give you time to do it now, although it's not very long, but I encourage you to go back and look at those things in li- and so we are understanding where we're going in these next two chapters in light of what Paul has already said. And I just want to point that out as we read our text today, that Paul is telling Christians, in light of who you are, this is how you now live in the way you've been called. He's saying, walk this way. And this is important for us. Because we, too, look, at around, look around at the world around us, and, and we are reminded as we read God's Word, what is true of us and for us who belong to Jesus. And in light of what's true of us, we ask the same questions, or maybe we, we should, right? What should our lives look like now in light of who we are in Christ? How do we make it all the way to the end? How do we live like they want to live with endurance and joy? And Paul's answer to them and to us is this. We keep walking according to God's word. We keep walking in what he's called us to. So let's read our text. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It'll be on the screen as well um, if you don't have it in front of you. I encourage you to follow along. We're going to read verses 1 through 12, the first half of chapter 4. Paul writes, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is God's word for us this morning. And there's a theme that we see show up in this passage and in Thessalonians as a whole, and Often in in Paul's writings, this encouragement that he says, that he gives, often sounds like this. I know you're already doing this, but let me just encourage you to keep doing it. As an illustration, let me ask you, uh, kids in the room, have you ever been pulled aside by your parent? Like, hey, can I come talk? Can I talk to you for a second? Or maybe a teacher? Or maybe the principal's office? Please report to the, right? Have you ever had a boss that says, hey, can you step into my office for a second? When those things happen, my guess is your reaction is like mine. What did I do? Right? Oh, no. It's like when your mom uses your whole name. Was that just me? Okay. Have you ever been called? Now, let me ask another question. Have you ever been called into an office or pulled aside by a parent or a manager, and the the person says, hey, I just called you in here because I just wanted to tell you that I've been really encouraged by the work you're doing. I just want to tell you the way you handled that conflict with your sister just now, that was really humble and great of you. I just want to encourage you for that. Hey, the way you tackled that problem uh, with, with the whole board, like that was, that was very, it was fantastic. Well done. Has it ever happened to you? Or are you more like the, the first part where like when your name gets called, you freak out? I mean, if you had a parent or a teacher or a boss or a manager who actually pulled you aside to tell you, hey, you're doing a good job, keep doing it, like they're the winner. That's, that's fantastic. If you're a parent in the room, I, I'm writing this to myself as I'm putting this sermon together this, this week. Like, I don't do that at, enough at all. So that, that's for me and freebie for all of you who have kids. Because that's what Paul sounds like here. He sounds like a really good dad who's pulling his, his kids aside and telling them, hey, you guys are really doing really well in these areas. Keep going. Keep doing that. And you can tell almost in his wording, he really cares about these people. They're, they're close to him. They're, they're friends and they're like family. He wants them to make it. So he reminds them not only of, remember what God has called you to, remember what he's called you from, but also, hey, here's, don't forget, keep doing this. There's practical outworking of how to live in light of all of that. And I just want to be really clear that our theology here matters. We believe God is pleased with us. God the Father is pleased with us as we are in Christ Jesus. And we ask ourselves how we now live our lives in light of that, consistent with that reality. And I think Paul's instruction here is we just keep walking by faith according to God's word. And that's a great biblical theme as a whole, this idea of walking. We keep walking. And in this section of verses, Paul kind of outlines this is what walking by faith looks like. He says, how you ought to walk. Um, Three areas I highlight walk in holiness, walk in love, and walk in honor. Walk in holiness, walk in love, and walk in honor, I think we find in these 12 verses. Let's look at the first one. Walking in holiness. Verse 1, finally, brothers, Paul says, and the word finally here might be odd to you because he keeps talking for two more chapters. Um, it's like the worst in conclusion, 10 minutes later. And this, this was more of like a, just a shift in his, in his thinking. He's moved from general encouragement and reminder of who they are to this is now how you live. He's, he's shifted to more practical application and so it's more of a, almost a therefore, in light of all this, now I have something else to tell you. Now for the practical part of my letter, Paul writes. He says, we ask and urge. There's that double way of speaking, right? Ask and urge. There's this strongly encouraged language in the Lord Jesus that as you received us, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. You're walking in holiness You're living lives that are pleasing to God, just as we already talked to you about. And we want to urge you to keep walking in this way. Walking in holiness, Paul talks about in such a way as to please God. And so this first point, this walking in holiness is, is going to be lopsided bigger than the other two walking in, uh, love and walking in honor. They kind of, those two kind of flow out of this. So if you're mapping this out or you're taking notes and at the end, you're like, gee, Jake's three points were a little lopsided. I'm just telling you ahead of time, they're going to be one is bigger, two and three are kind of subsets of one, but it makes sense. Okay. Um, The idea here is that walking in holiness kind of then spills down into these paths of walking in love and walking in honor and diligence. So so FYI, that's that's where we're going today. Paul uses similar language when he's talking about walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, walking pleasing to God. Colossians chapter 1, Paul writing to the church in Colossae says, And so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you hear that same language? Paul continues, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you, past tense, To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Walking according to God's instruction. Living according to God's word is pleasing to God. Is what Paul's saying. And this, like I said, is where our theology is really important. Because God's love for us is not based on our merit or works. It is wholly on Christ Jesus and his perfections. As the old hymn, My Faith is Found a Resting Place, says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. To which we all say, Amen. Right? And our walking in obedience pleases God. And these two things are not mutually exclusive. But both coexist together. God is fully pleased with us in Christ Jesus As Jesus' perfect righteousness is now ours. And at the very same time, our sin grieves God and our obedience pleases Him. And neither of these two things disposes or displaces the other. So Paul says here in verse 3, For this is the will of God. This is what God wills for you. Your sanctification. That is this. God wills that you should be made holy. Sanctification just means set apart, dedicated to, made holy, made pure. God's will for you is that you would be set apart, made different than how you were. And then, Paul directs his focus to a very specific area of life. Sexuality. Now, I know there's kids in the room and this passage is broad enough. Paul's nice to us to to keep it pg um, and if you read ahead, you knew this was coming. It's um, just giving you a heads up. Parents in the room, this is a good follow-up later at lunch. Okay? Paul uses this phrase, sexual immorality. And it serves in the New Testament often as a, as a, as a catch-all term. Uh, We see it in the New Testament fairly regularly, the word porneia translated as sexual immorality into the English, and it encompasses any and all sexual activity outside of the bounds of covenant marriage that God gives a man and a woman. And in the case of the Thessalonians, remember they're in a Greek culture that is religiously pagan and highly sexualized. Uh, If you know anything about history, the Greeks invented ways to be explicit. They made up categories that didn't exist before. And, and Paul has already cautioned them about the destruction of that kind of life. They've already seen it. And he's reminding them of the call to Jesus to call to them out of a life of destruction and into a life of holiness. He's already told them all that. And he's reminding them of it. Like, don't forget. And this path of holiness is one that's for us to walk in as well. There's an abstaining from in avoidance of, in other places, Paul encourages uh, believers to flee from this particular area of sin and temptation. So, so we can kind of look at it and be like, okay, that seems like a no-brainer, right? For our good and to live consistently with who you are in Christ, abstain from sexual immorality. Okay, great, got it, thanks. But then Paul gets a little more specific. Look at verses 4 and 5. In verses 4 and 5, he says that each of one, each of you each one, excuse me, each one of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That's how the ESV translates it. Other versions say that each of you knows how to find his own spouse or her own spouse. So the implication is for both men and women. And so Paul is essentially saying that each of you... uh, can, can take care of your own responsibilities and not mess around with someone else's spouse or someone's future spouse. And scholars are a little split as to the best way to apply this or, or take it apart. Is he talking specifically about controlling your own body and your own urges? Is he talking about like uh, having proper relationships? But either way, in context... Whether it's to manage yourself or to faithfully uh, live in the way God's God's designed, the core meaning Paul's getting at is basically the same. Because in a culture like theirs, like ours, the sanctity and holiness of marriage is not highly valued. I don't know if you've noticed that. So if someone likes someone else, no matter if they're married or not, the, the, the general consensus is, well, I can pursue that. I can pursue them. And Paul's saying, not, not anymore, you can't. You were called to something else. And the difference maker, Paul says, he says, don't give in to the passion of lust like the Gentiles, speaking of the culture around them, who do not know God. There's a direct parallel, a connection between knowing God and walking away from temptation and walking in holiness. It's not that they didn't have information about God, but that they don't know him. They haven't experienced new life in Christ that the Thessalonians have. They haven't tasted and seen the goodness of God who is gracious to sinners who humbly fall down on their face and repent before him. They, haven't, they don't know that. And so they're seeking to gain pleasure for themselves and fulfillment in any way that they can. And Paul says, you've been given something far better. So that's that first part. Knowing God is directly related to our fight against sin and our pursuit of holiness. Pretty big connection Paul makes, and then verse six he says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Here again, that word can be translated brother or sister. So let's tie this together. If I follow the lusts of my heart and disregard what God has given in terms of marriage and the the sanctity and holiness of the covenant, there, then what am I doing? If I disregard that, is I am sinning against another woman as my sister in Christ. If she's already married, then not only have I sinned against her and now her husband, and if she's not married, I've sinned against her and a potential future husband. And so that's, I think, what Paul is getting at here. It's not only an offense to God, which it is, but it is also hurtful both to my sister and brother in Christ. So Paul ties these these together and says, we don't live like this in family. And this is, I think, why sexual immorality comes up so often in the New Testament as this large area of temptation because it is not just a personal, private area of sin that we keep locked in our little internal box that nobody else knows about it doesn't affect anyone else. It's a sin against God and it's a sin against my neighbor. It literally just spits in the face of what Jesus highlighted as the greatest commandment to love God with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself. And to put a punctuation on it, Paul gives this sobering reminder. Verse 6. Don't wrong your brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. That word avenger can be translated as punisher. Now, as an aside to all the comic book nerds in the room, I don't think the punisher was ever officially one of the Avengers. But I was told that he was possibly in an offshoot after last service. Those of you who are like, I don't read comic books. How old are you, Jake? But the reality here is this. The Lord is the one who will deal with those who do wrong. That's what Paul's, that's the caution he kind of slips in here. Oh, by the way, the Lord is the one who will always avenge wrongdoing. And we've talked about this before, how good and terrible it is that God is just, right? That he should deal with injustice and evil and wickedness. That we are grateful that he is both just and merciful. So we don't treat it lightly as if God doesn't care about evil. Paul tells us he will avenge all wrongdoing. And then Paul closes this little section, verse 8, anchoring the Thessalonians to their identity. He called you out of where you were to where you are. Out of impurity, he says, you know, we're not called to this any longer, but In holiness. So when we disregard God's design, we reject God's decrees. It's not just human wisdom we're rejecting or human tradition. We reject and disregard not man, but God, who has given us his Holy Spirit, Paul says. That's a big deal. Paul's challenge is to walk in this kind of holiness. So let me ask, have you thought about this for yourself? It's one thing to to talk about and celebrate that God has saved us. That it's his will to send Jesus to die for us. And have you considered that it's also God's will that we would be sanctified? That we would be free from the bondage to sin. Not to trifle with it. Pretend it's no big deal. That's his, It's his will that we would grow in holiness. Further, Paul says, the difference maker, if you will, between walking in holiness or giving into the lust of the flesh is this. Knowing God. The antidote, Paul's offering... To giving into the flesh, and the temptation there, the antidote to that, he says, is to know him. Knowing him for who he is. Not only God as a good and gracious father, which he is, but also as a righteous avenger who always does just and makes right. So Paul says this is how we should walk, in holiness. And this, we said, now spills over into two other things we see in this passage. One, walking in holiness. Two, walking in love. There's a direct connection between walking in holiness before God and love for one another. As we read last week, at the end of chapter 3, a heart established blameless in holiness before God bears the fruit of love for one another and love for all. Look at verse 9. He says, Now concerning, so he's shifted now his language, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you're doing. Here Paul's being that good dad again, and he's saying, Hey, I know you're loving each other really well. Keep doing that. Verse 10, We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Now, we don't know all the details, but apparently in this report is that there are Thessalonian Christians who are just really helpful and loving and kind and servant-hearted to others. In fact, it's spread throughout the whole area of Macedonia. Ha- they have a regional uh, reputation for showing brotherly love. They have a regional reputation for hospitality. And this idea of brotherly love is a familial love. There's a willingness to be uncomfortable for the sake of family, Right? There's a a willingness to sacrifice for the sake of family. There's There's a connection that these brothers and sisters share. Even though it's not blood, it's a deep connection like family. That's the language Paul's using here. Walking in holiness is proved. It shows itself to be active as they walk in love towards one another. And in the verse above, when, or verses above, when Paul was urging them to walk away from sexual immorality, to avoid it, one of his reasons is because you don't treat your fellow brothers and sisters this way. You love them better than to take advantage of them. In fact, holy love between brothers and sisters is the exact opposite of that. It's not taking, it's giving. And Paul's saying, even though you guys are a young church, you already have a reputation for loving others well. And just as it was God's will that they would be holy and sanctified, God himself is working in them and teaching them to love like this. Verse 9 says, For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Paul's saying it's not just human wisdom. It's not like because I told you to do it. It's because look at your lives. The fruit of your lives is already producing love. This is a work of God in you. And he's celebrating that. And so if they walk away from that and reject that, as he says in verse 8, you're not rejecting my ideas, you're rejecting God's. It's an outflow of God's will to make us holy that we would walk in love. And to risk sounding like a broken record, uh, if you were here with us last week, I, I mentioned this. Do you find yourself connected to this, uh, connected like this to other brothers and sisters in Christ? Have you experienced this kind of love toward you from a fellow believer? Have they cared and loved you? You will. Do you have this kind of affection yourselves for people who might not be exactly like you, but are, excuse me, uh, share something far more significant than just DNA? That these people who God's placed you with share in the reality of Christ Jesus crucified and rose again. That together we share in the inheritance of the King of the universe as daughters and sons of our Heavenly Father. If we have no longing to be with the people of God, If we have a lack of deep love for one another, not only are we being robbed of a joy that can be ours, but it might be an indicator that we are not walking in love and holiness as God has called us. I think that's the backside of what Paul's encouraging in them. Walk in holiness, walk in love. And the third path, he says, is walk in honor. Look at verse 10. He goes, that's indeed what you've been doing, urge you to do so more and more, verse 11, and to aspire... To live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and dependent on no one. Paul says to walk properly before outsiders. You could use the word diligently or decently. I like the word honorably. Walking honorably and respectable seems to fit that word properly. And Paul gives three markers for what this looks like in verse 11. What does walking honorably actually look like? He says, to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands. I'd like to just tackle those real briefly. First, to live quietly. The idea of quiet living is one that is a life that is at rest. This is not an absence of activity or excitement. You extroverts in the room, you can be excited about stuff. Woo, go for it. He's not saying not like, don't be happy and excited about life. But a life that's lacking love and holiness is a life in chaos. And so we don't know all that's disquieting the lives of the Thessalonians. We don't know all that's stirred up, stirred them all up at this point, that Paul's encouraging them to live quietly. It could be the persecution. It could be the questions about Jesus coming back and the resurrection, which Paul will deal with and we will deal with coming up in this letter and in 2 Thessalonians. Perhaps there's an idleness or a nervousness not knowing about what's coming next for them. So all this time is spent talking about what might be rather than actually doing stuff. Maybe there's some selfish ambition that's kind of shown itself uh, to the surface in them so that there are some who are taking advantage of others for personal gain. It's possible in the midst of this young church that there are those who take the idea of godly and biblical rebuke for which there is absolute place in the body of Christ but have made themselves the chief correctors of everyone else. And in any of these scenarios, or half a dozen other things that might be disquieting them, causing them strife, what there is is a lack of trust in, and an ability to find satisfaction and peace in Jesus. There's a restlessness that bears this kind of fruit. And Paul says, to aspire to live quietly, that's a life that is resting and secure in Jesus. He says, live a life quietly. Then he says, mind your own affairs. So aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, to mind your own business. Now as a caution, this is not permission from Paul to just hole up in your own little box and be like, I don't need nobody. Just minding my own business. Just don't need the drama. Just going to live my own self-isolated life and ignore what's going on in the world around you mind your own affairs is akin to make sure your own house is in order first it's kind of like make sure you have your stuff together first and this is a tension to be managed in our walks with jesus that we must tend to our own spiritual health i don't know how many of you have uh, flown on an airplane somewhat recently probably not too many recently But if you've flown for any length of time and they give the, they give the instructions before you take off, right? Like seatbelt and the flotation devices under the seat and make sure all the tray tables stay up and the stuff up in the compartments. The one that always gets me is they say, if the cabin should lose pressure, oxygen masks will drop from the ceiling. And I'm always like, oh, that's good. And then they tell you, if you remember, please put your own oxygen mask on first before trying to help others. And I've always thought like, well, my kids are with me. Like, don't I want them? The reason they tell you that is because if you don't get your oxygen mask on and the oxygen is sucked from the, from the plane, I know that's a great image, right? You're no good to the people next to you. If you're dead, that's what they're saying. If you don't get oxygen, you're going to pass out. So you need to secure the oxygen mask so you can help the people next to you get the oxygen they need. Deal with your own oxygen first. Now, I always get a little weirded out when they're like, don't worry, oxygen is flowing to the mask, even if it doesn't inflate. And I'm like, okay, sure. I hope so, right? But what are they saying in that? Tend to your own spiritual health. Mind your business. Take care of what God's put in front of you. Working by the power of the Holy Spirit to get your own house in order. And we are responsible on top of that, from that, to one another, to be involved in caring for others. Sometimes we are called to be lovingly intrusive into the lives of others. Not out of nosiness, but out of genuine love. You could argue Paul's letters are loving intrusiveness. Hey, I'm just going to address some stuff I'm seeing among you. Because I love you. Right? We are called to walk humbly before the Lord so that we might be able to lovingly come alongside another to encourage, exhort, challenge, and serve someone else. It has this picture of the parable Jesus gives about the log and the speck, right? What does he encourage us to do? To remove the log from our eye, to acknowledge our own weakness and shortcomings and sin, not so like because the speck doesn't need to be dealt with, so that you can then help your brother remove the speck from their own. It's like put on your own oxygen mask, mind your own affairs, and then Paul says, work with your own hands. Paul will address idleness again in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, but we'll get it here as well. Basically saying, don't be lazy. God's called you to this life. Go work it. Are you a student? Be diligent. Are you a, are you a mom at home? Be faithful. Are you, are you a finance? You work in a finance department for a Fortune 500 company? Be honorable and full of integrity and work hard as unto the Lord. Work with your own hands. And this isn't as much about the type of work that you do. It's that just that you're diligent in doing it. There's a, there's many stories, but one story stands out to me of a, of a cult that thought the world was going to end. And so everyone sold all their belongings to friends and family and then went to a compound somewhere and just waited for weeks, did nothing. And then when the spaceship didn't come or whatever it was, they're all standing around like, well, I guess I'd didn't, shouldn't have sold that car or cashed out that 401k. k. wonder if I can get my job back, right? There's this, they were so stuck in what could be that they kind of forgot how to do what they were called to do. Don't be like that. Paul's saying, don't be idle. Do the work God has called you to do. Why? Because you, because you can walk properly. That's the word translated. There's that word before outsiders and to be, be dependent on no one. Show them what faithfulness looks like. If they're going to persecute you, if they're going to mock you, let them persecute you for the sake of Jesus, not because you act and speak dishonorably in the public square or on Twitter. Right? If, they're going to, if they're going to persecute you or mock you for the sake of Jesus, let it be for that, not because you're lazy. Show yourself to be diligent and hardworking so that they don't have reason to despise you for your work or lack thereof. They're going to persecute you or mock you for the sake of Jesus. Let it be for that, not because you have a reputation for cutting corners or your business dealings are so shrewd that people don't really trust you. In this way, Paul's saying you'll be set apart from the world. And so when the neighbor or the coworker or the fellow student or the friend comes to a place of crisis in their life, when they face the storm of loss or heartache, perhaps they will find us trustworthy. And generous, and a person of peace at a time when their life is unsettled. This is a snapshot Paul gives of what and why to walk in this way to walk in holiness, to walk in love, and to walk honorably. Now, last Sunday and um, in, in the evening, we had a covenant member meeting for the fall, and we outlined some of our hopes and goals for the coming year. Um, it was really encouraging, as uh, you know, if you were there or not. Uh, if you'd like to hear the audio of that meeting and to look at some of the slides, those are on our weekly update, so shameless plug for the weekly update um, to just kind of see what's going on there. But, but in our planning, as our, as our staff and our elders pray and plan, we're always asking, what metrics should we be looking at? How do we know if we're going in the right direction as a church? Do we just count seats on a Sunday morning and say, well, there's more people here this year than last, so that's good, or we have this many more dollars this year than last? Like What, what should we be measuring? We ask that question. And one of the things we're asking this year kind of trying to measure and these are a little broad so if you're like a goal setter and strategic planner and you're like these goals are not measurable or specific enough jake great that's fine but these are a couple of things that stood out to me from our time in terms of hospitality are the people of river city known for being hospitable and loving to our neighbors if someone said Hey, where, where do you go to church? You're like, oh, I go to River City. And are, 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 is that name, not for our sake, but for the sake of Jesus, known for being hospitable, for being loving and generous and self-sacrificial? Are we known for that? Conviction is another one. There were a couple. I've just picked out these two. Are the people of River City Church known for holding strong convictions of the truth of God's word, but with humility? Do we speak the truth in love? Are we confident and bold in our witness and winsome in our approach? I think those two hopes kind of line up with Paul's exhortation here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So, if I can, in conclusion, and this I promise is not two chapters, in conclusion, finally, if I can for a moment, let me be the dad or the teacher or the manager who just is pulling us aside as a church and saying, River City, I see a lot of this in us. By God's grace, We are not perfect. Far from it. But there is clear evidence of the Spirit at work among us. So, to echo Paul, let's keep it up more and more. For this is the will of God for us, to walk in holiness, to walk in love, and to walk honorably before the world, so they might see our love for one another, that they might see the work of our hands, and not not praise us, but give glory and praise to our Father in heaven. Can we pray? Father, we thank you for your word, that you instruct us from it, that we need not fear it or shy away from it. But by your spirit's work in your people, your word gives us life. It shapes us. And we pray that it would continue to shape us as we have been made new in Christ Jesus, that we would, by your grace, see the evidence that you and are making us new by your Spirit, being sanctified, to walk in holiness, to walk in love, to walk honorably before you, amongst one another, and before our neighbors. Would you continue to work in us, to shape us to be this kind of people, who walk this way. Would you encourage us now as we come to the table, as we get a fresh glimpse of the cost of purchasing us from death to life, and that it just as it was your will, Father, to, to crush the Son, to redeem us, that it is also your will that we would now walk empowered by your Spirit, being sanctified, paid for by this blood, and participants in the new life of the resurrection. Courage us today as we come to the table, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.